Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey guys, we are in for a treat. We have a man who is a frequent guest to the podcast, a man who needs no introduction, a pioneer in functional medicine, a 13-time, soon-to-be 14-time New York Times bestselling author, the one and only Dr. Mark Hyman. And he's got a new book, a book I wish, I can't believe it took him seven years to write it. It's called The Pegan Diet. We're going to start there because Mark was at our first Revitalize event in 2014 on a panel with me and Mark introduced Pegan into the lexicon. So Mark, let's start there. What took you so long to get this book out there? It was seven years. I mean, you were there. It was a joke. It was like, it was an attempt to diffuse a very hot situation on stage with a militant vegan cardiologist and a- I wonder who that was. Militant paleo (laughs) doctor with very strong opinions who were going at it. And I was like in the middle of them, literally sitting in between them. And I'm like, man, if you're paleo and you're vegan, I must be pegan. And everybody cracked up. I'm like, oh, that was a good joke. (laughs) And then I was flying back on the plane after the conference at Revitalize. And I thought, let me think about this for a minute. And I realized that paleo and vegan are identical, except for one thing, where you get your protein, right? Animals are grains and beans. Otherwise, they're the same. No dairy, no junk food, whole foods, lots of veggies, good fats, lots of good fruit. I mean, just really the same. And I'm like, well, they have far more in common with each other than the standard American diet or the SAD diet. We call it SAD, SAD, standard American diet. And that's really the problem. It's not people who are trying to eat healthier and picking this or that dietary preference. And and then I began to think more deeply about it. And I thought, well, there's so many different diet wars out there. I mean, you've got politics, religion, and nutrition. It's like, it's pretty much at the same level of intensity. Nobody's crashing into uh, universities, breaking down the nutrition schools, but it's pretty bad. And it breaks my heart because the truth is, we know what the basic foundational principles of good eating are and healthy nutrition. And the reason I wrote The Pegan Diet was to try to simplify what are the things that we know based on the science? What is a way that can be inclusive and have a big tent that you know, has a lot of ability to include a lot of dietary preferences, religious preferences, you know, ethical preferences, and even cultural preferences into a way of eating that works for everybody? And then within it, there's a lot of personalization. There's a lot of attention to how do you actually, for example, eat to not only eat for you, but eat for a better planet. How do you eat in a way that helps not contribute to and even reverse climate change? How do you personalize nutrition, right? Because one person might be vegan and thrive. Another person might trash their health. Another person might thrive on animal protein. Another person might not. And so it really is a matter of finding out for each individual what's true. But within that, there's a basic set of principles. And that's why I call the book 21 Practical Principles for Reclaiming Your Health in a Nutritionally Confusing World, (laughs) because it is that. So that was the birth. And then I wrote an article, like a blog, and it was kind of a throwaway, and and it got picked up by the USA Today and by the Daily Telegraph and this thing and that thing, and then the people started writing pegan cookbooks and making pegan bars and pegan shakes. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, this is too funny. But what's so appealing, I I think about the approach is. Look, we live in an all-or-nothing world. That's 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 polarizing. You're joking about religion and politics, and and like th- there are a lot of similarities in our world, the wellness world. And I think what what you do with this diet, with this approach, is bring the best of all the worlds together. 
in a book, in a, in a lifestyle. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle. So can you talk about like, the, like, and with something you talk about in the book too is the 75% rule. So can you just summarize like how you think about Pegan and how it, and segue to the 75% rule? Because I think it's a great approach. Yeah, well, at, the, at a meta level, as a functional medicine practitioner, the fundamental principle of functional medicine is that food is medicine, right? That it's not just calories, it's information. And that it very specifically, directly regulates our biological systems. And we have about seven biological systems that all have to be operating well to avoid disease and to create health. It's very different than the traditional medical model. So there's your immune system, your gut, and your energy system, and your mitochondria, how you detox, your hormones, communication system, your structural system, down from your cells all the way to your biomechanical structure. Those systems have to be functioning for you to be healthy. And when they're out of balance, disease occurs. And food is the number one driver of dysfunction or optimal function in each of those systems. So let me give you an example. And I'll just and then I'll and I'll go through the 75% rule, which is really about 75% plate should be plant foods, basically, seven colorful vegetables and fruit. And I'll just give you an example of why. So if you eat a diet that's inflammatory, which is our modern diet, 60% ultra processed foods that's super high in sugar and flour and refined oils and all these things that are highly inflammatory, our immune system gets dysregulated. And it's why we now actually are more susceptible to COVID than the rest of the world, because we're among the fattest population in the world, other than the Samoans, I think. And and maybe, I don't know if Mexico may be ahead of us a little bit, but we literally are a sitting duck when it comes to COVID because our immune systems are pre-inflamed. So when COVID hits, we're already on fire and our cytokine, that cytokine storm you hear about, that inflammatory storm, that just gets accelerated because we're primed for inflammation. On the other hand, you can eat a diet that's anti-inflammatory, which is using food as medicine. Now there's 25,000 phytochemicals in the plant world. We are just cataloging them. The Rockefeller Foundation, I think has given 100 or $200 million to create the periodic table of phytochemicals. Now. And what's fascinating is these phytochemicals are not things that we normally think of as essential for our health, but they really are. They're not like vitamins or minerals, but if you don't eat these over a long period of time, your health degrades. And some of these are extremely powerful. So I'll just give you, I'll take you down a little rabbit hole to explain the power of this and why the entire book has this meta framework of food as medicine and everything. So if you're going to eat meat, how do you make meat medicine? If you're going to eat vegetables, which are the best medicines? If you're going to eat nuts and seeds, which are the best medicines? So there's this product, this Food. It's called Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which is discovered, re rediscovered recently and was an ancient grain that was grown in the Himalayas, which is really tough conditions. It's drought resistant, it can grow in bad soils, it's just like it survives when nothing else can survive and it produces an incredible food that's got higher in protein than any grain that has 157 or 37 phytochemicals, many of which are not found anywhere else. And the reason is that this plant, when it's stressed, stress causes the system to build more defense mechanisms. So it's basically the plant's own immune system and resistance system, but we borrow these phytochemicals to benefit our health. So how does that work? Well, you've got in your bone marrow, these stem cells that make your white blood cells and they make a million white blood cells a minute. <laughs> That's a lot of white blood cells. The problem is these stem cells can get damaged by our processed diet, by stress, by smoking, by toxins, by radiation, whatever. And they become this kind of 
funky stem cells that then produce funky white blood cells. They're known as CHIPS. It's their sort of acronym, I won't go in the big name, but it's they're called CHIPS. Then they get on the circulation and they become what we call zombie cells. And zombie cells accelerate aging, accelerate inflammation, cause heart disease, cancer. They cause autoimmune diseases and all the sort of horrible things that we think of as common with aging. But what's extraordinary is that very few things can help to kill these zombie cells. Turns out the phytochemicals in Himalayan tartary buckwheat kill these zombie cells and rejuvenate your immune system. So when we talk about food as medicine, that's just one example. And I could give you a hundred and there's many more in the book, but that's a really cool example of how we can borrow from the plant kingdom their defense mechanisms. Because they, they didn't create those for us, but they're creating them for themselves to aid in our own metabolic and immune and microbiome function, right? So so it's kind of very, it's very cool when you start to think about it. And I, I, and I think that the 75% rule is essentially that most of our diet should be plants. I call it plant rich, not plant based. Plant based is exclusively no animal products, but I think you, most of our diet should, and it was always like that. We used to eat 800 species of plants as hunter gatherers. And then we now, and we now eat three mostly, <laughs> corn, in this country, corn, wheat, and soy, and the rest of the world is rice. But it's basically 60% of our calories comes with these mono diets of highly hybridized, starchy grains and, and meats and oils. So there's a lot to unpack there. This is basically, you covered like so much I want to cover in the interview, which is great because because it's, it's all coming. So I want to stay on the power of phytochemicals for a moment. What are some of the more common phytochemicals and some of your favorite sources, because the ancient buckwheat you described is kind of probably going to be a little hard to find. Well, we're, we're, uh, actually, the production of that, there's a whole, it's a whole. Okay. Is that Jeff Bland's? Yes. Oh, okay. I know this. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We'll so talk about it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. So my, my mentor is sort of the founder of functional medicine is the guy who sort of rediscovered Himalayan tartary buckwheat and is bringing the science to everyone. It's very, he's grown like the first hundred thousand pounds in upstate New York and they're milling it. And I just literally, I think I got, I think I literally got some in the mail just now. I got to make my buckwheat pancakes. <laughs> I got to get some because it was hard to buy. I know he's working on supply so we can officially buy it. I have to call Jeff now. I don't think you've had on it. Jeff's got cornered the market on it. So you got <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the phytochemicals, for example, uh, another example, which is kind of cool about the power of phytochemicals, that the stuff that you could easily get, is a story about the microbiome. Now, we all know about prebiotics and probiotics. And yes, there's prebiotic foods and probiotic foods, for example, like kimchi and sauerkraut and probiotic foods. You can think of things like asparagus and artichokes and seaweed and jicama and all these foods. And those are great. And those feed the good bugs in your gut. But what most of us haven't really thought about is the role of polyphenols which are these plant-based phytochemicals that actually feed preferentially certain bugs. So this is a really interesting story to unpack, and this is really a lot of this is in the book. How do you eat for your gut? How do you eat for longevity? How do you eat for your hormonal balance? How do you eat for uh, your immune system and so forth? So the, uh, there's a bug in your gut called Ackermansia mucinophilia, and this bug is so important because it, it, as, as the name says, mucinophilia creates this mucus layer in the lining of your gut that prevents a leaky gut. Now, leaky gut is something that happens because of all the stresses we're under, a horrible diet, antibiotics, gluten, and it just creates damage in the lining of the gut, and food and proteins and bacterial toxins leak in, and your immune system gets to see those and starts creating inflammation. This creates inflammation throughout the body, and it's been linked to every known chronic disease. 
But so this acromancy mucinophilia is so important. It prevents, you know, um, heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune diseases. And it turns out it's really important in cancer. Now, if you have low levels of this bacteria and you have a stage four cancer that usually responds to one of these new drugs called these immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors, if you have low levels, it won't work. These drugs require us to have this particular bacteria. Well, guess what feeds those bacteria? Phytochemicals, right? And the ones that they really like are pomegranate, green tea, and cranberry. <laughs> and so you can literally feed these gut bugs the right phytochemicals and fertilize them. So we're learning so much about how food is medicine beyond what most people ever thought of. So I'm curious with pomegranate, like, is that just, or are these pomegranate cranberry, is that just including them in your diet daily? Like, I'm curious, like how much, because I'm super fascinated by, I always think in terms of, we think as food is medicine, I'm always very curious by like dosage, the same way you think of like supplements, dosage, like how much do you really need? Do I need a little bit or do I need to like eat a cranberry, like a monstrous exactly. pomegranate? Yeah, exactly. I think you can get good amounts of these phytochemicals through relatively easy accessible things. For example, I use matcha green tea powder in my protein shake. I will add, you can get either pomegranate or cranberry powders that are organic, and you can take a teaspoon or two of those, or you can take a liquid concentrate, which is no sugar, but highly concentrated pomegranate or, or cranberry liquid. But I actually, with my team, we created something called gut food, which contains the prebiotics, probiotics, and polyphenols, and also immunoglobulins to help repair the gut. Because I had really bad uh, colitis a few years ago after an infection with C. diff, and it was the way I kind of rebuilt my system, and I had low acromancy, and it sort of just kind of woke me up to the idea that your gut microbes like to eat a lot of different things. So on the subject of gut microbes and something you touched on earlier, I'm going to come back to the bigger picture on COVID. You talked about unhealthy oils, and I tend to think of omega-3s and the good ones and then sixes and that ratio. And, and just talk a little bit about why it's so critical to our well-being and how we should be thinking about omega-6s and processed food. And I, my personal take, look, COVID's been awful, but I'm an optimist, and it's my hope that with COVID, the conversation around taking care of oneself, immune resilience has become front, will become front and center. And so just connecting the dots there and, and how we should be thinking about processed food and what should we, because processed food does happen and how we should be thinking about it and what should we be looking for as we try to take- as food happens, otherwise- Yeah, the, but it's like I, I had, for example, I had Kate Shanahan on here months ago and something in, in COVID, we were, we were having a lot of refried beans and her practical advice, and we're fine with beans here, Colleen and I, was you gotta, you gotta read the label, make sure no vegetable oils. It's a lot of people stuff vegetable oils in refried beans. And it's like, sure enough, you start looking at the labels, it's like, holy cow, they're everywhere. So I know it's a big question, but Talk about omega-6s and, and let... So the bigger thing you touched on was how do we eat in a way to make ourselves immune resilient in the face of COVID? And it's pretty simple. And I wrote a big blog about this. It's called 
drhyman.com forward slash C19, and people can read how do you take care of yourself to make yourselves immune resilient from a functional medicine perspective. But it's it's all the obvious stuff, right? Eat the vegan diet. <laughs> it's basically it's basically eating real whole food and getting rid of the processed food and all the weird ingredients that are in our food. Because you're right, you never know when you go out to a restaurant, when you eat something that you think is a health food, it could be filled with all kinds of weird ingredients that aren't actually good for you. In terms of the fats, 15% of our calories, up to 10% to 50% of our calories, depending on your diet, are refined vegetable oils. Uh, we call them vegetables, but they're really seed, nut, and bean oils. The predominant one is soybean oil, which is a increase in consumption a thousandfold in the last hundred years. It was not something we ever ate. Uh, and it's processed in a way that it, it uses heat and hexane and other solvents to extract it. And it can become and it can become easily oxidized. These are unstable oils that often are easily become oxidized or rancid. And a little bit of them are not bad. I mean, if you eat soybeans, you're going to get them. If you eat nuts and seeds, you're going to get them. If you eat olive oil or any of that, if you eat you know, beef, you're going to get them. But the question is how much and what is the proportion of other oils? And so when you look at you know, our diet historically, we probably had a you know, ratio of two to three to one omega sixes to threes. Uh, now it can be up to 20 to one omega sixes to threes. And I just recall this patient I had who was you know, massively overweight, diabetic, heart failure, high blood pressure, kidneys failing, I mean, everything was just a mess. And she had a ratio of like 20 to one, because <laughs> all she did was eat junk food. And, and she had no omega-3 fats. And it, historically, all the food we ate, I'm here in Hawaii, and there's so many deer that are, well, there were African deer that were imported over to Molokai, but you know, they're all eating wild foods. They, they have higher levels of omega-3 fats, wild, wild animals do. So do wild plants. And historically, we ate wild food. We hunted and foraged coastal, I mean, and we live on coastal terrain, and that's where we got the fish omega-3 fats. And so our bodies evolved to use these as critically important building blocks for our cells, for our brain cells and our brain function, for our immune system, for regulating inflammation. And so, I, and I don't really guess, I test. I, I, I have the privilege of being able to have seen tens of thousands of patients, literally seen millions and millions of lab data points, and tested most of my patients for full panel of nutritional status, including omega-3 fats, omega-6 fats. And it's just shocking to me when you see the level of omega-3 deficiency in this country, it's up to 90 plus percent. And and, and maybe a little less in my patients because they usually come in pretty conscious and aware. Maybe they're taking omega-3 supplements or they eat fish. But if you're a vegan, if you don't eat fish, guaranteed you are omega-3 deficient. And that can have dramatic consequences on your immune system, not to mention it affects mood, cognitive function, skin, hair, nails, pretty much everything. <laughs> what are your favorite sources of omega-3 for vegans and, and non-vegans alike? Ah, well, if you're a vegan, purslane is an incredible weed that grows it's from Greece and it's a, as a plant and it has a good source of omega-3s. Algae is also a good source of DHA, not so much EPA, which is one of the key omega-3 fats. There are plant-based omega-3 fats called ALA, which is different than we call EPA and DHA. Those are the ones that are the effective ones, the active ones. ALA has to be converted in the body. And people say, oh, I'm getting my flax seeds, I'm getting my chia seeds, I'm getting my hemp seeds. They have omega-3s. I have my walnuts, they have omega-3s. And they do, but there are plant forms of them, and it requires an enzyme to convert it's only about 10% of that gets converted, sometimes less depending on the person. So you really do need these, particularly in neurodevelopment uh, in children, 
It's really important. I mean, if you look at the data on breast milk versus formula uh, fed babies, the breast fed babies have an IQ points that are seven points higher, which is corrected when the formula has DHA added. Now, a lot of the formulas are having DHA added to it because it's such an important part of breast milk. And DHA is one of the omega-3s. It's critical for brain development and cognitive function. So it's tougher to get if you're a vegan. If you're not opposed to taking fish oil, it's probably a good idea because you can't get EPA, but at least algae-based uh, DHA. And then, of course, for everybody else, the best source is uh, seafood, which my favorites are not probably the favorites of most people, but it's things like mackerel, anchovies, herring, sardines, <laughs> and wild salmon. Smash. The famous smash. functional medicine smash diet. Smash fish, right? The smash fish, salmon, right? Salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. And that really is what I try to eat. I, I, I don't like the fact they come in cans, but you know, try to get it from sources like Vital Choice that have better, better cans that don't have BPA in them. But those are really great. And you can have that three times a week. That would be great. Even a can a day is great. It's a great source of proline, choline from the sardines, protein, and also has a few calcium in the bones from canned salmon or sardines. You get a lot of calcium. So in the context of COVID, it's definitely, I think more people are aware of the, the inequality in terms of access to healthy foods. And I know this is such a passion point of yours. You, you've talked about this in great detail, but... Suffice to say, there are some huge systemic issues with regards to government subsidies, policy, climate change, big agriculture, you name it. And the powers that be somewhat determine what's affordable. And I know it's a big and complicated issue, but it's a new year. I'm an optimist. How, How can we begin to get this right so that more people have the better access at more affordable price points to foods that truly function as medicine and foods that do not hurt our health and well-being. Yeah, that's a great question. So thanks for asking. And I tend to be an optimist too. I think there's hope with the new administration, there might be a different way of approaching things. The good news is that Biden you know, has identified four key areas of focus. The bad news is that he hasn't connected the dots that they're all related to food. And if you focus on food and the food systems and the policies around that, he could literally impact all of these tremendously, including COVID, as I mentioned, the economy, which is burdened by the cost of chronic disease and now COVID because of chronic disease, the climate, which is 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions are from the food system, depending on how you slice it, 40 to 60, depending on who you talk to, and uh, racial injustice. <laughs> and the health inequities that result from the, the, the disproportionate marketing and use of ultra-processed food by communities that, you know, are most affected, of communities of color and Hispanic, Latinos, and, and, and African-American communities. And you can see, in, you know, how this shows up. They're 30% of the population, for example, in Louisiana and Chicago, and they're 70% of the COVID cases. I mean, you literally, if you go on the bus stop from, like, midtown Manhattan to the Bronx, for every stop you go, your life expectancy goes down. And by the time you get to the Bronx, your life expectancy is like 10 years less. It's so sad, <laughs> and yeah. For that, but food is a huge reason because it affects people's health. It affects children's cognitive ability, academic performance, behavior, leads to increased violence, which I talked about a lot in my previous book, Food Fix. 
and it, it leads to this burden of chronic disease, which then leads to an ability to work and be a productive member of society and keep them economically disadvantaged. So I think the solution is if we if we started to initiate policies that supported the production and 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 manufacturing and distribution and consumption of healthier foods, and that starts really at the seed level, at the farm level. So what what excited me in the first few days of the Biden administration was the initiative around regenerative agriculture, because if you start there and you say, well, I'm going to grow things in a way that's good for the soil. Well, that has all these downstream consequences. You can't grow giant monocrop fields of processed food. You can't, you, you've got to grow food that's more nutrient dense by definition. So you start to build and you start to maybe disincentivize some of the practices that are, that are harmful to the environment, right? I mean, why should we subsidize the growing of corn and soy and, and wheat, which are grown in ways that are having massive downstream consequences? So I talked a lot about the true cost of food. That cost accounting is a tough thing to do for governments because they're very short-sighted. But it's important for us to start to rethink this whole approach. So I think incremental steps, I think, could be very helpful. And I think getting regenerative agriculture moving is, is sort of a great lever. The other thing um, that I'm really working on is a whole food as medicine approach in terms of driving policy around that. That means how do we get insurers and Medicare, Medicaid to pay for food as medicine? So I'm working with a group on medically tailored meals. It now has a contract with Anthem to provide meals to reverse diabetes and reverse heart failure. And when we start to build a database around this and see this come to fruition, I think then the domino will start to fall and we'll start to sort of get this food paid for. I mean, in one study in Geisinger, they took food insecure diabetics who were costing 240 something thousand dollars a year each <laughs> by giving them $2,400 of food, they reduced healthcare costs by 80% over $190,000. But they're willing to pay, the insurers are willing to pay the 240000 not the 2400 for the food, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head when we're subsidizing corn and soy and these foods that are heavily, end up being heavily processed and, and harmful to our health, and we're not really subsidizing broccoli. And I, and I don't know, I, I, I am a political novice, I don't know how we get there. I, I am optimistic because we've we've had David Kessler on this podcast, who is now part of Biden's COVID task force. He seemed to really understand the principles of, of health. <laughs> so I'm hopeful, but it's a systemic issue. Yeah, that's really what I, my last book was about food mix yeah. and with a nonprofit that I created to help drive policy change in Washington. So we're on it. And I am a new year, new administration. I'm hopeful, but you, you can't. We can't just talk about all these things without. So much starts with policy because they do have the power to make a lot of these amazing, healthy foods more accessible uh, and affordable for people. So we're on it. <laughs> so something else you talk about in the book, and it's a huge issue. And I had my like my, my uh, levels glucose tracker on last week. I am not pre-diabetic, but insulin. And, and insulin resistance. And you talk about in the book how it's one of the leading causes of chronic disease. And, and so on the subject of insulin, you go as far as, that's just such a great line, treat sugar like a recreational drug. You've been saying <laughs> that for a while. I remember that one. We talked I about that I, at Revitalize in 2014. I think that's actually where I came up with that too. I know. It was a very auspicious uh, meeting. So, in fact, I met, I met a woman who helped me with my a cookbook at that meeting, Michaela Rubin. Yes. Yes. Revitalize. We're going to bring the event back in probably 22. We'll we'll see. I think 21 and a little too close to 20. call, but we're going to bring it back. 
<laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But I, yeah, I mean, I think that that sugar, people don't understand its impact. And the, and a little sugar is fine. And if you're metabolically healthy, you know, I just rode my bike 10 miles up a hill, probably not going to have a long-term consequence for me. But it's the repeated assault on our metabolism by starch and sugar. And they're the same, like a piece of bread, a Coca-Cola. You should think of them in your mind as the same because in their body below your neck, they're the same. And what happens is when you eat the amount we're eating, which is about a pound a day for every man, woman, and child in America, like of sugar and flour, like a pound. Like it's just a staggering amount of flour and sugar because it's what we grow, corn and wheat, right? And then the oil goes with it, which is the soybean oil. So pretty much everything is made from the same raw materials. It creates a reaction in our body that leads to the production of insulin. And so insulin is good in that it keeps your blood sugar normal. And I just had a patient yesterday who's 400 pounds, blood sugar, a little bit high, 110 in the pre-diabetic range. His average blood sugar, we call hemoglobin A1C, was perfectly normal. So this doctor looked at him and said, you don't have diabetes, you're fine. He measured his insulin level. Now it should be less than five. Over 10, I start to worry. 15 is really bad. Over 20, rarely see, because most of my patients are healthy. This guy's insulin was 100 fasting, which is astronomical. And, and what the consequence of that insulin is, because his body is becoming resistant to the effects of insulin. So to keep his blood sugar down, he's got to make more and more insulin to keep the blood sugar normal until he can't, and then he'll get diabetes, right? The insulin does the following things. One, it basically drives all the available fuel in your bloodstream into your fat cells. So all the sugar and free fatty acids, everything just goes boom, right into fat cells in your belly. So they cause this belly fat which is angry, hungry fat. That fat makes you hungrier and it becomes angry. In other words, it generates inflammation. So why are all these people pre-inflamed from eating junk food for dying from COVID? Because of insulin resistance. That is driving, there's literally fire in the belly that's going throughout their system because the insulin is driving all this inflammation. It also makes you hungry. So you wanna eat more and more carbohydrates. And the last thing it does, which is kind of a dirty trick, is it's a one-way turnstile, like in the subway. The fuel can get in to your cells, it can't get out. So as long as insulin's high, you cannot burn it. You cannot mobilize the fat stores. And that's why ketogenic diets are so effective for, example, for creating weight loss and also reversing diabetes. And it's not about the calories, it's about the quality of the calories. If you look at a type one diabetic, their pancreas shuts down, it's an autoimmune disease, they don't make insulin. The presenting symptoms is these people are starving all the time because they are, their cells are starving, but they have something called polyphagia. They eat, they can eat 10,000 calories a day and lose weight. Why? Because there's no insulin. <laughs> Without insulin, you can't gain weight, right? And if your insulin's low, you'll lose weight. By the way, this problem, this problem insulin resistance, is should is synonymous almost with every age-related disease. It's right. The biggest cause. Of cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, which they call type three diabetes. So these are, this is not just, oh, I'm getting a little belly fat. This is the driver of aging and all the age-related diseases. And the numbers are staggering in America. When you look at 
diabetes, you look at pre-diabetics, and then the population of people who are unaware that they're pre-diabetic. I, I, the numbers escape me offhand, but the, it, it's an insane number. Half. Half, Half of Every Americans. American has diabetes or pre-diabetes. Wow. One in four teenage boys has pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy, meaning they have some level of insulin resistance, which is manifested as high blood sugar, high blood pressure, bad cholesterol. So those are some pretty shocking statistics. I've, I've definitely referenced the, the metabolic health number specifically we've referenced a lot here because it's become front and center with COVID and, and it's shocking. I'm curious, in, in researching and writing the book, were there any other shocking statistics or facts where you just said, wow, I, I can't believe I didn't know this? I mean, I've been in this for quite a while. I mean, I, what's shocking to me Jason, is that this isn't headline news, Right. that nobody is talking about this. And the four initiatives that Biden has that are susceptibility to COVID, our economic crises, our climate crises, no one's connecting the dots to food. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, we're talking about everything else as siloed problems. This is one problem. And that sort of continues to stagger me in how little people really understand this intersection of these problems that we're facing as a society and globally and how elegant the solution is. And if we started really, for example, at the farm, at the seed in the farm, we can have massive consequences for the good for society, the economy, humanity, climate, everything else. So the one person who's not in our world, the wellness world per se, who has been talking about this all the time, and Colleen and I have been watching religiously, is Bill Maher. Bill Maher, like every week, talks about... He is the only guy yeah. who's talking And he, uh, he, he, again, just this last week, where's the government talking about, let's get healthier? How are we not acknowledging this? We're doing all the, we're talking about vaccinations and all the things we need to do to deal with this. And we're doing them, but we still need to have a conversation about getting healthy. He's the only person I can think of a main, if, if we want to call him the mainstream that's talking about it, that's it. Pretty radically on. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. agree. I mean, he says it like it is. I think he's very controversial, but I think he's right about this. And I, I do think I've been saying this from the beginning, from day one. I wrote an article for the Boston Globe about it. It, it just, it's just staggering to me. I'm sort of so shocked by it. And how I, I think the truth is, all the conspiracy series aside, there, there's, there's a real phenomenon of a medical industrial complex where there's a self-reinforcing belief that, that medication, technology, and vaccines will save us. Unfortunately, it's just not true. They're all necessary. We need them all don't throw any of them out but the elephant in the room is that we if we look at the science around nutrition and nutritional immunology and covid there's a lot we can be doing <laughs> in fact my friends at tufts dr majafarian who's the dean of the tufts school of nutrition science and policy at the beginning of this put together with his team of nutritional immunologists a list of compounds that they discovered from the literature that could be active in either preventing COVID because of boosting immune function or being antiviral. And, and they're rigorous scientists over there. They're no joke. And they wanted to get a few million dollars to study this. They came up with zero. No one wants to look at it. And I'm like, 
they'll spend literally billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money for vaccine companies so they don't have to you know take the risk and they indemnify them on top of it but they won't throw a few million bucks at other kinds of approaches that you know maybe actually even more effective and not to work in people who are having metabolic issues and have chronic disease and so and we we studied the vaccine in a very small cohort and it worked in that cohort and people don't even understand what that means and i, I just released a podcast on vaccines and covid to try to get people to understand the nuances of the story that's another whole topic but i i think the vaccines aren't going to save us without us also taking care of these other things as well well look if you think just think about it this way i know about oversimplifying it but if more people were metabolically healthy, more people, or excuse me, less people would be in desperate need for the vaccine right now who are very at risk. And the people who need the vaccine can get it quicker instead of this slow rollout. And it's just, it's a mess. So the, the two conversations are not, should not be mutually exclusive. They are inextricably linked and we need to acknowledge that. Absolutely. So... With technology, personalization, I got my aura ring. I think you got your, I've got, you got yours too. I got my whoop. I got my Fitbit. I was wearing levels the other day. I love all this stuff. And I also, I'll also, you're such a futurist. It's amazing to go back in time where so many things you talked about in 14 at Revitalize or passed on my buddy green come to fruition later. Look, it's an exciting time to be in health and wellness. There's so much happening and you are a futurist, you're on the bleeding edge, you set trends. I'm curious, what are you watching? What are you paying attention to that you think is interesting that we're gonna be talking about a year or so, or seven years from now in this case, with regard to the vegan? I mean, I think that's a great question. I, I think there's an intersection of five trends that is gonna transform healthcare. And they're all starting to kind of intersect in different ways. And, and I don't think anybody who has sort of scale at this point has really understood this, but it's coming. The first is the understanding of systems biology and network medicine, functional medicine. This is the future for sure. And there's a real recent textbook by these guys from Harvard called uh, Network Medicine. It describes a rethinking of our approach to diagnosing and treating disease based on the body as a, a network. The second is the omics revolution, which is our ability to really understand metabolomics, the microbiome, the you know proteome, transcriptome, genome, and so forth. The the third is the quantified self movement, which is what you're wearing on your wrist, what I'm wearing on my finger, which is the levels, blood sugar monitoring device, and more to come. That allows us to get real time data about our biometrics that can be fed into databases. And the last two are the capacity of big data to take all this information and handle it, and lastly, the use of artificial intelligence to make sense of it. And so when you put together the omics revolution, systems biology, quantified self, the big data and AI, you've got an ability to look into biology in a way that we've never had before. So there might be a moment in the future where you take a spit test and a drop of blood from your finger and a little bit of poop, maybe a swab from your cheek, you send it to the lab, and they spit back at you information that actually is relevant to you, not like 23andMe, which is like, oh, you might get this, you might get that. It's, like, it's not that, and I talked to Anne Wichigny right at the beginning, I'm like, are you just giving the information or do you want to help them transform their lives, right? I found and, out that, that I'm very, very white. I'm very Western God, European. I'm like, sure. that's... Sure. 
I thought you looked like West Africa. I don't know if you could tell. <laughs> yeah, and I'm Jewish, which I kind of know. Right? <laughs> I, my, my, <laughs> telling me that. So I, I, I think that moment's going to come where we're going to be able to kick out, okay, these are your particular needs for these particular foods, these particular nutrients. This is how to feed your microbiome properly. This is how to upregulate this pathway in your body that's not working so well. And I think that's coming. Right now, and I have a whole section in the Pegan Diet book about how to personalize your diet based on what we know now, which is a lot, right? With a lot of information that we can get. But I think that's what's exciting to me is it's, and I don't know if Google's gonna do it or Apple's gonna do it or Walmart's gonna do it or some somebody's gonna get this idea. I've been chatting it up to everybody and hopefully someone will sort of get it. But you know, it's tough. Paradigm shifts are tough, Par are really tough. Like we're talking about a radical notion of disease that is quite different than we are currently under, which is these ideas of organs. You know, you've got your heart doctor and your brain doctor and your lung doctor and your stomach doctor and your kidney doctor, and nobody talks to each other. The problem is your body's a network, and and so functional medicine has that framework, and it's so hard to change paradigms. And you know, this is shorter term, but something I'm really excited about, and I think is a silver lining with COVID. At the highest level, telemedicine is becoming more widely accepted. And so there's more access to integrative doctors and also presents the opportunity for health coaches and coaches as doctors look to reach more people and, and build their business, which is exciting to me personally because we have an amazing program, our Functional Nutrition Coaching Program, which you're a part of, you're in. Yeah. And yes. talk a little bit, like I'm so excited that we're able to provide access and educate people. So, you know, I think we need coaches more than ever. What's your take on the evolving landscape and why this is so critical as we don't look to just preach the choir, but build a bigger church and help people on a global scale? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think if people want a longer answer to the question, they should watch my TED talk from 2012 called If We Can't Cure the Patient, meaning we, the doctors, healthcare system, can the community. And I think if you look historically at healthcare delivery, it's especially in other parts of the world, it's often community-based solutions. And I think that health coaches are the community health workers of the future. And I believe we'd need millions of them. There's massive healthcare shortages. There's shortages of nurses, doctors, not only in America. I mean, when you think about the, I mean, we're, we're talking about shortages of doctors and nurses in America. Like, and we have more per capita than anywhere else in the world. You talk about going to Africa or India or Asia, like there's a real shortage of healthcare workers. And, and Paul Farmer, through his work, for example, in Haiti and other parts of the world, found that he could dramatically impact disease by the power of community health workers. He called it accompaniment. We have to accompany each other to health. And and that model I use with the Daniel Plan in Saddleback Church, where we basically created a self-coaching program, even a self-coaching program, guided experiences through small groups that they support each other to live better lives. And that group lost a quarter of a million pounds in the first year. Together, I mean, not, there was uh, 15,000 of them, so it wasn't a quarter of a million pound person, but it was a lot of health benefits, weight loss, and it was really through the power of community and love and support. I think Rick Warren said, everybody needs a buddy, right? 
everybody needs a buddy. And I, I think getting healthy is a team sport. So I feel like health coaches are critical. And we use them at Cleveland Clinic. We use them in my clinic at the Ultra Wellness Center. Very powerful. Yeah, and I think, I think now there's a real career there. Like there, there's a path. And I think what's so amazing about that is it comes down to access and you can help more people. And I think with COVID, the need for connection, the need for community to stay sane, to be healthy is critical. There's that famous statistic that loneliness is, is, is essentially the same as smoking 15 cigarettes, cigarettes a day. Yeah. And so... Yeah. You need the the power of community, just a to to function as a healthy, happy human being, and then also if you're looking to achieve health goals, and you know it's critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think we're we know that the power of health coaches is equivalent to to any other health professional in achieving outcomes when you work with people, for example, in groups. In fact, it may be better. We see that the, actually that. This is a, this is an example. We're about to publish some data from Cleveland Clinic, where we found that people working in groups with health coaches, the outcomes were three times as good as one-on-one -on -one doctor visits. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of not surprising because people are supported, they're encouraged, they're held accountable, they're getting more education and more time and they are accelerating their improvement in their health. So not only are the results better, but they're faster too. It's pretty pretty shocking data we're gonna publish. So we'll wow. see that. So my last question, as someone who's practiced for how many, 20, 30 years, you, you've practiced quite a long time. I'm older than I look. Yes, yes, you do look great. You, Mark, whatever, whatever, guys, you can't see Mark, I can see Mark, whatever Mark is doing, it's working, trust me. I'm 46, I hope I look as good as you when I get there. I'll, I'll just take getting there. That's always the first step, I would say. Just get there. and um. I'm a strong fitter than I've ever been, even at 61. It's amazing. So, I just get smart about what I know about. <laughs> I'm, my, I'm my own best patient. I just hack on myself all day long. <laughs> so, and I love that. Marcus Surreal, he definitely A-B tests everything on himself. <laughs> so, you know, for practitioners out there, whether they're, they're coaches or doctors, what advice do you have for the newbies who are getting started? And what have you learned about yourself? And like, if you could give yourself advice when you were just starting out as a practitioner looking to help people, to heal people, what advice would that be? Well, I mean, I, I always, I, get, I ask this a lot and I have a lot of young uh, people looking to go into healthcare or become doctors reach out to me and, and I'm just very straight with them I said look here's what's happening in medicine here's what you're learning which is 20th century medicine this is 21st century medicine and I think if you you know, go in with the view that there's a there's a, a different framework for thinking about disease let's call it functional medicine network medicine systems medicine whatever and you learn about it and you filter everything you're learning through that then I think you're going to be okay. My daughter, for example, is going to medical school and I, and she's starting next year and, I, and you've got to start this course, which is the training course for the basic functional medicine foundation so that everything you hear, you have a container for and understand where it fits in the architecture of science and medicine. Wow. Well, for everyone listening, now's the time, 2021, a new year. We're all optimistic. Go out there, be the change and pick up The Pegan Diet, another amazing book from the prolific New York Times bestselling author, one of our, one of our dear friends, our 
the one and only Dr. Mark Hyman. Thank you so much. I have to take a break from writing. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you. As you've just heard from Mark, 2021 is the time to turn your passion into a career and become a functional nutrition coach. Our functional nutrition coaching program gives you access to 19 of the world's top doctors and health coaching experts, including Dr. Mark Hyman, who you just heard from. There's over nearly 30 hours of instruction. These experts give you a solid foundation in functional nutrition and teach you how to brand, market, and expand your wellness business. Now's the time to be the change you want to see in the world. Enroll in our functional nutrition coaching program today by visiting mindbodygreen.com coaching and enter code Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N, that's Hyman, to get $300 off. That's mybuddygreen.com slash coaching and enter code Hyman to get $300 off.